Hi, James. Ben, how are you? Well, I, I'm better than I was when I was uh, editing last week's podcast. That never quite made it on, uh, up onto the web. That that happens occasionally where we do one of these things and we get to the end of it and we're like, hang on, I'm not sure if, if this should go see the light of day. <laughs> well, so <laughs> it's funny because we, so we the problem is that we've managed to devolve. We're going to touch on real estate in a moment and op- open door and, and I think kind of do a two for one for the last couple weeks worth of topics on, on Shechery. <laughs> but I message you, I'm like, we just spent 40 minutes getting in-depth on an industry that neither of us are remotely qualified to get this in-depth into. I was really enjoying the conversation, but at, <laughs> at the end when you messaged me, it was like, uh, Ben, come on, this is just like business school, to, like in-depth analysis of an industry that we know nothing about. What could possibly go wrong? I know that's the problem because we're actually very we're we're, we're very skilled at the uh, at the long running BS. Uh, but uh, we, we I think we took it just a bit too far last week. And everyone, all the long term listeners are like, "Really, you could do more?" But no, it's true. We we can we can take it to the extreme, and 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 we did. I I I think we should stop d- uh, divulging the fact that we might be bullshitting on a regular basis to everybody <laughs> who's listening right now, or they might they might cotton on and stop listening. No, see, it's accountability. So I want to share. I want to share our shame. We uh, we spend too much time talking about things that we're not experts in, and and so we pulled the plug on it. So you can listen to our podcasts knowing that we put our integrity behind this. Kind as, of. No, as, yeah. So we do. As long as we know enough to know when we're bullshitting. <laughs> exactly. Anyhow, uh, our thanks on that note. Our thanks to Mailchimp. <laughs> For, for sponsoring our podcast. This is a very authentic sponsorship uh, because uh, they are the They know the what they're that talking about. That's right. They're, no, they're a service that I use for strategy. So I, I can re- read this ad uh, with with my, with full integrity, as Very it were. Uh, they've been around since 2001. The company started as a side project funded by various web development jobs, and now they are the world's leading email marketing platform, sending more than a billion emails a day. Their goal is to democratize technology for small businesses, creating innovative products that empower their customers to grow. So our thanks to MailChimp for sponsoring both this podcast and the one last week that that we, we had to pull the plug on. Yeah, as always, thank you guys very much. We really appreciate it. <laughs> now we have to go back and re-record this intro since we made ourselves look terrible. But. I, I don't know. I feel like airing a little bit of dirty laundry every now and then is not a terrible thing. So last week we were talking about real estate. and. The a market that we're not uh, personal experts in. Neither of us have have bought a house in the U.S. Anyway, I have bought a house in Taiwan. Uh, but the I wrote about I wrote about a company called called Open Door. Man, now I'm just calling my entire piece into question. I point. I know that like you now have a hundred reasons to not listen to us right now. So uh, if you're still listening, thank you. We appreciate the trust. Well, so what, what I was writing about in that piece, I think there's a really interesting – what's really interesting is is the extent to which technology has not really changed mm. real estate in, in, in a significant way. And the big companies in this space, the biggest from a technology perspective is Zillow, which acquired Trulia, its biggest competitor, both were public at the time. Zillow's obviously still public uh, a couple years ago. and but But they're all – it's very much a marketing, like very top end of the funnel sort of play. People go on Zillow, they look for houses, they look at their estimate, and 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 they may start the process there. But once you actually buy a house, uh, realtors still dominate this mm. business, like like actual personal re- realtors. And in the U.S., there are 
the vast majority of transactions have realtors on both sides. Buyers, both the buyer has a realtor and the seller has a realtor. And the way they are paid is the the selling realtor will collect 6% of the purchase price of the house and then will keep 3% and will pay 3% to the to the buyer, to the buying real estate agent. So both get 3% of the transaction basically. As a foreigner, and again, I haven't bought a house, but when I heard that the the buying agent got three a 3% commission, it kind of blew my mind. And when you step back and think about 6%, and like that's before you get into all the other transaction costs, taxes and so on that are involved, 6% just for agents seems like such a huge amount. And anytime, anytime you hear of these kinds of margins for an old world kind of putting, what's the word, um, putting... Uh, lubricant into the system it just it just raises a red flag to me here is an industry waiting to be disrupted for sure and there's been and there has always been a sort of lot of investment around this for that very reason but it turns out it's yeah to your point it's been very very hard to break into and the buying agent point is particularly crazy if you think about it. This is something that's mainly in North America, as I understand. I know it's in Canada as well. Europe usually does not have this this buying agent. And the and what's so ridiculous about it is not just that like what it's not totally clear what their job is, you know, especially in the presence of 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 sites like Zillow and Redfin, which has a different model, which which mm. we may touch on a little bit. But also the fact that the fact that they're incentivized by the final sale price means their incentives are towards the house costing more, right? right. Like, it, it, so what kind of advocate can they really be for someone buying a house? Like, it's not like they're going to get into some hardcore negotiation to bring the price down because they're cutting their own paycheck, right? But on the flip side, because the selling agent is paying them, the buyer doesn't feel the pain of paying them, right? They, they may be being hurt because they're not press being as a, a, as aggressive of help but they're not feeling the pain of paying that three percent because the seller is paying it if you were thinking about setting up an incentive system for uh, an agent to help you as a buyer to really ensure that you <laughs> you kind of put yourself at risk of getting screwed it's really a pretty optimal system when you think about it yeah it's it, yeah I mean, it's it's ridiculous but but you start backing up and you and, you know, there's a lot of things where you look at this market in aggregate, and you can see this, I think, in lots of markets where you look at it from the big picture, and it's like, why, why does this system persist? Mm. But once you actually get down on sort of like the individual level, it, it looks a lot different, right? And in the case of real estate, like to your to what we just talked about, we haven't bought houses because for whatever whatever reason we haven't. It hasn't fit in our lives at this point. But you think about most people, most people don't buy that many houses. Mm. Like they'll buy one, maybe two, maybe three in their entire life. And and so you, when you do that, it's probably the biggest transaction you're ever going mm. to make. So if it's already expected that you get an agent and you're making the largest financial transaction of your life and that's just what you do, like, of course you're going to get an agent, right? You want the help. You want someone to hold your hand to, to, to go through it, especially when it's a status quo, right? I mean, you could see a situation where there wasn't an agent and someone's like, man, there really should be a business of agents because people, their biggest, you know what I mean? Like, there's lots of reasons on an individual base for it to occur. And the fact that you don't do these transactions that often means that you can look back and say, you know what? In retrospect, I'm not sure I really needed an agent for that. But now it's too, it doesn't matter. You already bought the house or you already, you already sold the house or whatever. And and so there's not a lot of 
drivers to break this up, and well as there are drivers to sort of keep it together, even though from a big picture, it doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, I think one of the points that your article made was like, even if it doesn't really make sense on the buyer side, it's particularly the case on the seller side. And if you only buy houses relatively infrequently, you're probably going to sell them even less frequently. And this notion that yes, while it's a really big transaction, it happens so infrequently uh, the, the fact that sellers just kind of want to get it done and, and wash their hands, as you described it, the ki- kind of like how you described it in the article, means that, yeah, you, you go through it once and then the incentive for the, one of the big actors in the system to actually go about changing it is super small because you're not going to have to worry about it for perhaps another 20 years. Right, exactly, exactly. So the, there hasn't been much change. Probably, the, I mentioned Redfin has kind of sort of taken this model where they tried to actually do like a pure technological sort of solution where they're going to just take out the agents completely. They are they are an agent themselves, so they have full access to all the listings, which is sort of a, one of the things that the agents have used to to wall themselves off. There's a thing called the multiple listing service, and you have to be a certified realtor to get access to that. And so, and so in this case, Redfin has access to it. They're a certified realtor, but that means they have to have like people on the ground. They have to pound signs into the law, and they have to have open houses, all those sorts of things. But it turns out because they're, what's what's their selling point? Their selling point is cheap, right? They're, they take much less. They take half as much in a transaction, which is actually higher than it used to be. They started out taking like $1,000, like a flat fee. and But it turned out for all these reasons that people wanted agents, they wanted help, they wanted handholding, they never really got traction. And then you end up in a situation where the agents in the system didn't want to work with Redfin. Because if you're a buying agent today, like and you like you 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 steer your client like away from Redfin's homes because Redfin's like is ruining your your model right you're you're selling a house tomorrow you don't want to compete against Redfin and so they've had a really hard time sort of breaking through through this sort of this incentive. the people who are locked into the value chain the agents are keeping them out and the people who might have incentives to bring them in as a whole have incentives but on an individual basis for the reasons we said don't have a reason to really break up the system. It's it's one of these things where uh, that model makes so much sense, and and this is a, this is a mistake. Like that in, I, in theory, right? Right, and this is a mistake that I think so many folks in tech, and particularly folks with a very engineering mindset, make is they imagine how it should be at the end state, and then try to build that without the recognition that it's it's actually when there's a system in place your starting point is almost as important or if not even more important and figuring out how you fit into the existing system is as important as this desired end state when you have everybody on board. And it feels like that's what uh, Redfin didn't do well, but it's what Trulia and Zillow in contrast did do particularly well. Right. Well, well, just just a quick quick sort of jump into a rat hole. I mean, this week, there is Google like is spun out their self-driving car initiative into mm. Waymo, yes. like a new standalone company, right? And to me, of criticism I've had about the Google initiative from the beginning is they've approached self-driving from a like theoretical endpoint perspective. Like every car on the road ought to be autonomous, and they're communicating with each other and this whole thing. And I and again, if you're sketching out how autonomous cars ought to work. I think that's I think they're correct. And in fact, I would not be surprised that if Google 
could take over a city mm. and all other cars were banned, their system would probably be be good enough right now. But the problem is that you're that's not happening. And and you have to deal with the world as it is. And so you have to figure out, you know, do you iterate like slowly but surely as, as like the the approach of a lot of the industry? Or I mean, how are you if you're Google, how are you going to create the conditions that you need to succeed if your assumption is that all the messiness that is there is suddenly mysteriously gone. I mean, like it may be, they may be right. That may be the only way to do it. In which case I think self-driving cars are going to happen probably in other countries first, like China or something like Singapore or something like that. But in the meantime, here in the States, like, you got to deal with all the people who have cars and all the stuff that's out there and the reality of the world as it is. The, this is why the, the self-driving thing is so fascinating to me because you have the existing players in the existing system that have built up business models around creating desirable branded vehicles to which for them, uh, this notion of self-driving cars built around a business model like Uber's, that's very disruptive and they are not at all interested in pursuing that. The only interest they have in Mercedes-Benz has in self-driving vehicles is if they can plug this feature into their car and use it to sell, to, to make the car more expensive, which is using this technology in a sustaining way. It, 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 it supports their existing business model. On the other hand, you have Uber, which is you take self-driving vehicles and the, uh, you plug. They already that. have the business model. Exactly, the business. It's not disruptive for them at all. It's it's a sustaining innovation, so it supports their existing business model. So, uh, it's fascinating. And what's so cool is Google's actually a third way, which is th they're agnostic. They don't have a business model that necessarily supports self-driving cars. They're going to try and will one out of nothing and. And everything you just said around not having a business model that supports it, like that, it's not sustaining or disruptive for them. They have to build one. But it's so interesting being able to see an industry and a technology where there are these three different there are these three different options for the business model around the same technology and how the how the how that's all going to play out. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Oh, you know, for sure, for sure. I mean, we've talked about this before, and this is this gets at why I've. You know, I'm still optimistic on behalf of Uber, just because I think the business model and the network is is people way underestimate how hard that is to build, mm. and and everyone over indexes on on the technology. Not to say the technology is easy. I mean, we saw yesterday how sure. crafting Uber's technology really is, uh, right? Yeah, but. Which, if you want to be really devious, if they can poison the well for self-driving cars, maybe that's better for them. But, wow, but I the, hadn't thought of that. Oh, and just yeah. so people know what we're talking about, they, they there was like a self-driving car that ran a red light that, ironically enough, was caught on the uh, dash. A uh, taxi's dash. Cam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty funny, huh? <laughs> um. So yeah, anyhow, but that, that's a digression. Just to point out that again, you're spot on. This is a mistake that so many technologists make, where they you get a new technology about oh what could this be how should this system work mm. but if you don't consider the the starting point you're basically like building a bridge from nowhere yeah. uh, to nowhere and that's what happened in technology so yes what zillow did well is they've basically wedged themselves into the system as it is where they are basically a marketing 
discovery, top of the funnel, front end for the sort of real estate market. People go to Zillow, they look around for houses, they find them interested, and then they call an agent, right? And the agents are the ones who actually support Zillow by putting by advertising houses on there, paying for, to promote various places, things like that. And so they're very much into the system. They're, they're, they're skimming off some of the revenue from selling agents in particular. And that's, and they built, you know, a, a very nice, a very nice business on top of that, but it, it's, it's sustaining the system as it is. It's not fundamentally changing it. You know, it's interesting when I read this article and I was going through, and we should get to Open Door quickly, but one of the things that came to mind about Zillow and Trulia is that it seems to be a, an interesting example, perhaps, of aggregation theory where they've been so successful at providing a service that potential buyers want that so many buyers' eyeballs are on their app or on their site that real estate agents are effectively having to pay a tax to make sure that those uh, those properties that they're listing are listed on uh, Trulia and Zillow. I-, I was wondering what you thought about that. It's a good point. There, there are some aspects of that in that like, they're capturing they're capturing sort of customers at the front end, right? Hmm. I think why they're not aggregators though is that they're not getting into the actual value chain, mm. if that makes sense. Like they're not becoming a, a, a major player in reef. Like what happens in with an aggregator is they reform the value chain. They form a new choke point in that chain, and then everyone has to reorganize themselves around it. Right. The the core principle in aggregation theory that I got from Professor Christensen was the conservation of attractive profits. The idea that somewhere in a value chain, when one part of the value chain is integrated, the other parts modulize around it, mm. and all all the profits flow to that point. And, and when that point of integration shifts in the value chain, the rest of the value chain must necessarily reorganize itself, right? You can't have – you're not going to have multiple points. You're going to have one point of, of, of power and everyone has to organize themselves around that. And Zillow and Trulia don't have that because they're not getting into the actual transaction. It's still the case for all the reasons we talked at the beginning. People want to – they want agents and they go to agents and the money is going through the agent's hands. And as long as that's the case, uh, the best that Zillow can accomplish is being to your point, being a tax kind of like it's they're kind of like a meta search agent, right? Mm. Like, and and this and there's a business here like Travago just IPO'd yesterday at a actually a pretty disappointing price. And I think one of the reasons it's disappointing is it looks like they're just going to be a skim as opposed to getting into the value chain itself. That seems like as good a point as any to segue into what Open Door are doing because it's. I think one of the things that's most interesting about them is that the way that they're integrating around the job to be done that sellers of properties have. Exactly. No, that's 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 exactly right. I've been figuring out how to articulate that, and you just thank you. you just you just put it right 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 in my hands. So the if you think about the the, the real estate transaction, the the. The most disadvantaged player in this transaction has always been the seller. And the reason is if you're buying a house, you're looking at multiple houses. If you're an agent, you have multiple houses to show or multiple houses to sell. The seller has one house, Mm. right? They have no options. All they can do is sell the house at a price and – and if they have any pressure, any time pressure, any monetary pressure, like they're they're very hamstrung in in dealing with that. And where and so this is where I think just from a way to enter the market perspective, what makes Open Door so interesting is their focus, the customer they are serving in this relationship is the seller. 
So what, the way Open Door works in, uh, is uh, they basically you go online, you put in your address. They're only in Phoenix right now, or Phoenix, Dallas, if they're about to open in Las Vegas. You go in there, you put in your address, and they will immediately give you a quote for your house. And if you accept the quote based on data, and they're doing lots of like machine learning and all this sort of stuff to, to to do it, and we'll get into the risk and all the problems with it, you know, at least in passing in a, in a moment. But if you, they'll give you a quote. If you accept the quote, they will. Send a house inspector who obviously make sure everything's okay. If there's any necessary repairs, they will they will show those to you. If you accept them, they will pay you the price they said, and then they will take out six percent, the usual real estate fee, three percent of which they will pay to a buying agent in the future if they build a buying agent. They'll take out the six percent, and then they'll take anywhere between zero and six percent what they call a market risk premium, which is basically the fact that they are giving you certainty in selling your house in exchange for them bearing the uncertainty of uh, 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 of selling it. And the market could change and they have to hold it on their, they have to pay, they fund this with debt, so they have to pay interest uh, and all, all this sort of thing. And then, and also any repairs are just taken away, taken out of the final price. So you don't actually have to, you don't have to pony up money for the repairs because they'll just discount it from the price. So from a seller perspective, it's more costly, significantly more costly, but the like there is significant value you're getting from this you can literally have your house sold in a week and which is could not be more different than the way it it plays out under the current system you think about the nature of employment particularly in in the united states and other developed countries where where jobs arise in certain areas because there's a cluster in one point and they disappear in another. Now, obviously, part of the reason people want to stay where they are is because they've built a life there. They have a community there and they want to stay involved. But part of the reason they stay is because of all the friction involved in moving somewhere else. And I don't think it's possible to overstate how much friction how much of that friction comes from the uncertainty and the difficulty of selling a house. And if you can create effectively a website where you log on, you type in your address, you get a price, you click accept, and your house is sold, and you get the money a week later or whatever it is, and you're good to go, like the impact this could have is absolutely huge. For sure, for sure. And, you know, it's going to take years, if if ever – for open door to get into the communities that really need liquidity mm. in their housing markets. So I mean not to overstate that but but yes this idea of intro, being a market maker in, in in a place that's never had one is has potentially very significant and meaningful impacts and it gets to why there's so much more intriguing to me than Zillow or 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 Trio or even Redfin. I mean Redfin's trying to disrupt this market but they're but they're Redfin is like the banner ad of real estate. And what I mean is like banner ads like try basically took a newspaper ad unit and put it on the screen, right? And we've talked about this a bunch in this podcast where you have to actually figure out what makes sense in the context of the new sort of area to make a difference. In this case of Redfin, they're basically, oh, we'll do the same thing as before, but we'll just be cheaper. <laughs> you know, like that's basically mm-hmm. their proposition. Whereas open door, a few things. One, they're they are more expensive, which I think is interesting, because they're actually delivering something of significant value. And they're saying, we will give you this value of certainty and no hassle and you know total flexibility for you moving and moving on or whatever in exchange for this price. And again, whether that price is worth it in the narrow thread they have to 
they have to string or I'm missing messing up my metaphor there between you know like taking on paying for their risk and not you know offering a fair price is going to be very difficult. I'm not threading the needle. Easy. Thank you, thank you. That's what it was. But they're offering benefit, and not just that, but to the point of aggregation theory, they are getting well into the value chain of real estate, and they are changing how where stuff is in that value chain. Right? They're they're, they're kind of slicing off that seller who would just kind of dangle out there with with real estate agents in the center, kind of integrated between buying and selling, and they're saying we'll just go in and buy stuff and then we will build up our own inventory. We will sell it. We will work with agents. They're not a threat to agents. I mean, they're a threat in that they're another competing agent, right? But there's tons of agents out there. Agents compete with each other. That's not a problem. What they didn't like about Redfin was Redfin was was ruining their business model. They were being cheap, whereas Open Door is being more expensive. So if you're a buying agent, you have no reason not to work with them. They're going to pay you your 3%. They're maintaining the idea of a seller paying a, a, a premium to sell their house. But once you get into that value chain, once you get into there, your position to, in the long run, start to actually reshape the market in a way th- the first players were not. It will be it will be interesting to see how agents react because on one hand, yes, there's there's price maintenance or even increasing the price from a certain perspective, uh, uh, and and so you wouldn't expect from that point of view agents to view it as a threat. But on the other hand. Uh, this is an agent with a capability of effectively built-in financing, or e- even more than that, built-in certainty that no other agent has. And I could see them on that perspective uh, viewing it as viewing uh, uh, open uh, agents viewing open door as quite a risk uh, or, or quite a threat. But I, I guess that's one of the things that will we'll see yeah, play t- out. T- B- TBD. Yeah. No. And just to be clear, like I, I thought I was clear in the article, but I still get a lot of people. Oh, like. Ben Thompson thinks, you know, Open Doors is going to be amazing success. I thought it was actually – I don't know if it's going to be success. It's super-duper risky. Like particularly – I mean the most obvious thing is what happens if there's a big market downturn, right? Yeah. And they're carrying all this inventory. Ouch. Like, yeah, for sure. Two, I mean 2008, the, right? Think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, they're sort of – the threading the needle I was talking about before is they have to – charge enough to cover their risk and to cover their interest and to cover their – you know, the holding costs. But every – percentage point that they increase that premium like they're shrinking their addressable market right because they're just, they're just getting too expensive i mean you talk about going from paying six percent of your house to paying 12 percent mm. of your house like we're we're talking like tens of thousands of dollars and it's, and, it's people's biggest investment typically right right exactly exactly and, and and so, like, what, yes, they they are they typically sell houses for more, but this isn't like a flipping company. Like, they're not buying like distressed houses and then selling them for a big premium. Their typical premium is about like five percent, five or six percent, which is not not that large, right? And, and you could see that five or six percent being wiped away again if there's any sort of downturn in the market. So this is uh, it's super risky. Like, the, they're taking on. Yeah, just like a, a ton of risk. They're having to really get in there. They have to build up like you know, these house inspectors, people to go in and repair the houses. They they have a really cool system of showing houses where they actually put cameras in the house and they have you unlock with your smartphone so you can go view a house 24 hours. But they, they're going to have to deal with, you know, problems that might come from that. They have to install that stuff. Like, it's a super risky endeavor, but that I, I, I'm happy about that. I, I'm happy as an observer of technology because, like – Companies like Zill and Trio, like yes, they've achieved success, but they're classic 
tech companies. Like they, it's all digital. Like there's no sort of marginal cost to their model. Their 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 cost. I mean, yes, they have salesmen and stuff like that, but their 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 costs are building up the website, all the front end work, and then basically extracting a, a cost in the industry. If you want to actually change an industry, if you want to actually fundamentally in the real world that has real assets, you have to get your hands dirty. I mean, with Uber, Airbnb, like you have to actually get into mm. there and change mm. stuff. And the fact that they're doing that is, I think, a great thing. And it might fail. Most venture-backed firms do. But if you want to change things, you have to take that sort of risk. It's been interesting to see how, and it's, it is easy to see the number of ways in which it could fail and the number of reasons for why it is a really risky investment. But it, it almost feels like um, people have lost sight of the potential for success uh, in focusing so much on the potential reasons for failure. But there's one other question I wanted to ask you about, which is um, you said in the article that it was disruptive. And I'm curious to hear why you think it's disruptive and one of the other one of my other bugbears about disruption is disruption you're always disruptive relative to something else so I, why do you think it's disruptive and what is it disruptive relative to uh, well it's a very good question i think cuz on first glance they they're not disruptive for the for the reason that they're more expensive, right? Mm. Uh, and and th- I mean, this is something I think we've had a discussion about before. I quibble with that necessarily being a requirement of, of, of disruption, but what I think is is potentially disruptive of their model is is two things: is that one, they're focused on on underserved sellers or on underserved uh, customers, mm. right? Which is always the current model isn't really great for people selling their houses for the reasons you know I weighed I weighed out before. Mm-hmm. Number two, disruptors have new business models that that can't be responded to by the people currently in the market. Mm. And in this case, by taking this sort of, uh, I want to say aggregative, but the, the, I don't want to get confused with aggregation theory, but this sort of uh, approach where they're going to be a big player buying multiple houses and then selling them, your typical real estate agent, that's not a business model that they can compete with. They're not carrying the the level of capital that would allow them mm. to to mm-hmm. compete on on that level. And it's a and it's an area where, and again, I'm not sure if it's disruption, but there's something, there is some sort of it, it word here that goes here because they have a model, they, they have three ingredients, I think. So one, they have the underserved seller or the underserved customer, I should say, they have a business model that the incumbent cannot respond to. But what I think is particularly interesting, we kind of got to this, is they have a model that the incumbent's not even motivated to really respond to. Again, because the they're not undercutting agents on price. They're actually make agents' job easier in some respects because the 24 hours viewing, like you don't have to and they're they're a rational negotiator. They're, you're not dealing with someone who like just won't sell their house for a reasonable price or won't agree about repairs or whatever. Mm. Like open door is taking all. So if you're a buying agent, it's actually pleasurable to deal with open door because as opposed to like your typical individual home home seller. So I, I, to me, all those are characteristics of disruption. Again, they're not cheaper and they're not sort of inferior technology. If you think they're more advanced technology, so it doesn't quite fit. But I, I think those other things are just as important as being cheap. 
So maybe it's not disruption, but I think those ingredients do really matter. It's it's interesting around. I I think what's interesting about it is this notion of them taking a bold bet around integrating over two parts of two parts of the value chain that were previously modularized, which is this notion of the selling agent and also the finance. It feels like that they're stepping into the role, uh, taking on both of those roles, and it's allowing them to do something that previously no other entity was really able to do. And again, is that is that truly disrupting is that truly disrupting the uh, the the banks on one hand and the agents on the other hand? I'm not sure, but it's allowing them to it's allowing them to uh, offer a service that uh, that no one else was previously able to do because the way the system had been set up, nobody had the resources and the structure and the exposure to people, and even thought about their role in the system as doing what Open Door is doing. Yeah, the bank part's interesting. And in the long run, that's for sure one of the ways they can have additional income streams and hedge their risk and stuff like that is getting more into the, the financing area. But if you think about the value chain, what the, the integration that's happening is so there's, I think, in the, there's four parts of a, of a value chain in, mm. in, in real estate there's the house buyer. There's the buying agent, there's the selling agent, and then there's the house seller. Mm -hmm. And to date, I think the integration has been in the buying and selling agents, right? Mm. They they play both sides of the system. They all have to be bought into this MLS system. They have to be certified realtors. Mm. And all the information that actually matters is there. Zillow, like even Zillow and Truya, the problem with them is that the information is always out of date, like because they're not plugged into the system, they're just they're they're there, ser- kind of serving at the at the pleasure of the agents that who are their customers, right? And, and now they're kind of walked their public companies are kind of walked into that. It, it's very hard for them to break out of that value chain. Where Open Door is integrating is Open Door is both the house they're kind of taking out the sellers and becoming a seller themselves, and they are also selling agents. Mm. So they are shifting the integration to the selling agent, and the house seller is now integrated into one piece. And now you have buying agents, and you have house buyers who are a little more modularized. And in the long run, and where I think the key for Open Door to be a success, is suddenly that buying agent seems not very necessary. Right, if they can start building up sufficient volume, where buyers like Redfin, but where they, but if they can get much more volume than Redfin ever did, where buyers now go to Open Door directly. Now they get to keep that three percent themselves. Some of their models looking much better from a risk perspective, and and they're like that. I think that's the long run sort of play for them. If that makes sense, it totally makes sense. It's interesting because as I was reading the article, and even as I'm listening to you talk about buyers going directly to them, I think I think uh, the the one organization that really has an opportunity here. And if I was if I was in charge of them and could make a bold bet, I would love to take the Zillow Trulia model. And it feels like they have so many eyeballs from buyers right now and take some of the technology that, uh, that, that Open Door has introduced around, uh, uh, 
showing houses where they install cameras, they install locks on the front doors so people can come in and help themselves to do a viewing of the house. I think if they had some courage, it would be they have an opportunity and it does. And and I say that I, I say that kind of mockingly, but at the same time I'm very I'm acutely aware of your point around them being a public company and there's a degree of conservativeness built in because you're a executive in one of these companies your role is to keep delivering the numbers and if you make a bold bet and screw it up the numbers all disappear and this would definitely be a bold bet whereas if you if you screwed it up all the agents would not want to work with you anymore but you have the eyeballs from buyers. You uh, use this technology to uh, uh, speak to sellers directly, the technology around the locks and the cameras and say, hey, we already have all the eyeballs of buyers. Don't worry about the agent. Come directly to us. We will list your house. We will take care of all the showings and everything through the use of technology. No one will run off with your stuff because we have cameras. They can come in with the locks and so on and so forth. And we will be able to offer this at a greatly reduced price as to what's presently being the case because we're able to do what a lot of agents were previously able to do, but we can do it with the use of technology. I get your point, and it's very tempting because Zillow and True, like they have these customers, right? What if they could just now pivot? The, the problem is it's a little like what we talked about at the beginning, right? It's thinking about like, oh, the idealized state that they could get to, but you have to really dig into where are they right now and where they are right now is their customers are not house sellers. Their customers are not house buyers. Their customers are real estate agents. Remember, like that's their position in the value chain. They are paid and supported by real estate agents advertising on their platform. And to execute that would necessitate basically firing the, all their customers for completely new ones. And there's no reason to think that that they would succeed for all the reasons that that Redfin has already failed. Yes, they have more people viewing houses, but how are you going to actually get people listing houses on there? What's your what's your selling point to them? Uh, you, um, it's it's excellent pushback. So I, I like you. I like to reason by analogy across industries. And there's a company that did this particularly well, where you can threaten your existing customers if you have control of the end customer really well. And the the company that comes to mind is actually Netflix, where uh, they had such a great experience for the end customer, the user of the content, which in this case would be buyers in the real estate market, that even though suppliers to Netflix in this instance uh, the content creators can see what's happening as Netflix slowly becomes more and more powerful and dominates more and more of the value chain in entertainment. They're still forced to play with them because they've become an aggregator. And this is why I asked the question early on whether you thought um, Zillow or Trulia was an aggregator. And your response was they're not in the value chain, so they're not a true aggregator. And I, I'm wondering whether if they were so bold, whether they could uh, enter into it. In, enter into that position. Well, no, here's here's where the, here's where the analogy actually does work. Mm. What was what was critical because all the content writers did start pulling stuff from Netflix. Netflix's library is actually smaller than it was before. But what has Netflix done in the meantime? They've integrated into the supply. Like they are, they're not. Netflix is in many respects one of the most integrated companies out there. They're integrating mm. all the way back into show production. 
and even to the point now, they are funding shows directly from day one as opposed to buying them. When, like when they first started doing original content, the show would be made and then they would buy the show. Now mm. they're actually funding the show from day one. Like their integration is actually only deepening. And this actually, so this is why Open Door is actually an analogy to Netflix because they're integrating back into the supply. Mm. You have to get in, in, whereas Zillow and Trulia just sitting on top, they're much more like like a like a Hulu sort of thing. Like it's sort of a meta sort of thing that sits on top. But unless you get into the actual value chain, you don't have power. And that's the sort of difference between real aggregators and ones that are just kind of advertising portals. Well, for, for, it, if that makes sense, it totally makes sense. And it's interesting to play out what you just described, where where we said that part of the uh, part of the incentive for Zillow and Trulia not to do anything is that you piss off your existing customers and you threaten your revenue stream, but you play out the option of not doing anything and Open Door and its competitors start to get a real foothold in the market. And you could imagine a world where they actually integrate down into what Trulia and Zillow are doing, where they provide the services and buyers buyers just like well they have so much of the market i'm just going to go to the open door app to see what's available for sale yeah no, absolutely i mean that that's the long term that's the long term if open door succeeds that's how it's going to succeed the problem with zillow and true is like the, that die has been cast like mm. they are locked into their they're they're locked into their model and they are they are not disruptors they are potentially subject to disruption you know and in in that case like this is a mindset shift that i think mm. is necessary for tech in general right it's so easy to to think of like tech in, with like an 80s mindset or a 90s mindset where it's all these upstarts and we still glorify like people in garages and stuff like that like it's, the garage is gone right it's been gone for a long time you look at like the just from a market cap perspective for a while the top five companies in the world were all tech companies now it's five of the top eight but it's close enough and again yes there's still stars and stuff going on but as an industry generally like our position in the world is not the sort of scrappy upstart it is the it is the establishment, and that's certainly in the case of Zillow, Zillow and Trulia, they're not like big players like Apple or Microsoft or Facebook, but they are fully a part of the system of real estate as it is, and they will rise and fall with that system. You know, I think this is such an interesting point because it's always been that tech has been the scrappy upstart, the disruptor that's taking on the 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 incumbent that's typically in the physical world and and it's been providing it's always been positioned as providing something better, but this example is a fantastic microcosm of uh, how it's not always the case anymore, and we need to reevaluate those assumptions. Now there are tech companies that stand on the side of incumbency that that might actually be fighting for a system to stay the way it is, and maybe not improve in in a way that that would be better for society. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting to watch it play out. And I hope that one of the things that characterizes tech, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure I hold high hopes because human nature being what it is, that, that, that tech as an industry continues to fight to have an environment that is supportive of new uh, companies like Open Door, creating a fertile environment for that to be the case, as opposed to what has traditionally happened in lots of other industries where you get to a point of incumbency and your your goal, whether it's with uh, lobbying or whatever it might be, that you fight to keep things the way they are. 
Yeah, well, I think this is something that, you know, because if you think about back in the day when, like, Microsoft was, like, the big bad sort of kid on the block mm. and was so dominant, there was still, like, you just from a geographic perspective, the fact that they were up in, up in Redmond was it was still kind of Silicon Valley was the the town of mm. was the place of upstarts right it was like the challengers to, to and you kind of sort of got to maintain when you thought about the bay area there was microsoft big bad microsoft up there but there was like we're all the the scrappy upstarts and we're messing things up and disrupting things and in the world you know this sort of implicit optimism that by virtue of screwing stuff up it's going to be better in the long run which mm. you know i've been writing about for a while that's not necessarily true today though the it is Silicon Valley itself that is dominant, right? What except for Microsoft, which is still one of the top five? What are the other ones? Apple, Google, oh, well, I guess Amazon, Amazon. is also, yeah. is also up there. You're right, you're right. But well, we can get them in a moment. Well, if you think about it, even Amazon and Microsoft, those are kind of the platform companies, right? Today, mm. they are very much enabling sort of companies. I would say by and large, I mean, Microsoft was still have for in as sharp elbows. So does Amazon in, in e-commerce in particular, but. You know, you talk about Apple and Google and Facebook, particularly Facebook, but even Apple to an extent, having a very closed garden and we're going to extract maximum value from our ecosystem sort of thinking. Like the the way those companies are incentivized and the way they do business is very opposite of what what is favorable for startups. And and now it's all it's all the same ecosystem in a way it really wasn't before. It's like, you know when you say it like that it's kind of scary because uh, in in the context of a couple of our previous conversations where we've talked about how tech which has previously always been tech on tech it's been tech companies fighting tech companies it's it was previously this contained ecosystem where the competition was contained but they became vicious competitors like highly highly honed predators that are very very competitive but now that's starting the walls around that that ecosystem tech on tech are starting to break down and it's now tech on the rest of the world and this idea that these 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 predators these highly evolved predators are going to start taking what they've learned out into the physical world and compete out there if they take this this attitude that you just described where it's like very much value capture as opposed to the traditional Silicon Valley narrative, at least, which is first focus on value creation and then worry about value capture, I, I, I get a little bit worried. It's. It, I think that's a that's a good distinction, and yeah, it, it it is a worry. And like this is again, this is the thing, the part of Microsoft that I've always thought doesn't get enough credit. And I analogize, and that's why I said that Amazon and Microsoft are are kind of like the two platform companies because. Mm. As vicious competitors as they are, and both are, make no mistake. And if you are competing with either of them, even today, like Microsoft tries to present themselves as being, you know, you know, a friend to everyone, but mm-hmm. ask their direct competitors, like, like, uh, like Identity, for example, right? Like they have still very sharp apples and will fight very hard for their spot, right? Which is fine. They should. We like that's that's business, but. With things like AWS, where it's enabling this huge universe of of business that wasn't possible for, or in the case of like startups, you can 
you can have a startup in an office because your servers are are running AWS and you're and you're paying an operational expense as you scale. You're not paying a huge huge amount up front. Transformative, it really is in in a really positive way for. For, for society, I believe. And Microsoft has always had this sort of approach with Windows. Yes, Windows in the OS space was a vicious competitor, and they did not treat people very nicely. And in their core interests, they would play dirty tricks, do whatever thing. But they also fostered a huge universe of value-added resellers and installers and, and OEMs, all sorts of stuff. There were bigger, there was a bigger business than what they extracted. But when you cut get something like Facebook, or Apple, where you take all the value of the iOS ecosystem and Apple is keeping a huge majority of that. You take all the value of the Facebook ecosystem and Facebook is keeping a, a, a huge portion of that. Like what – I have hopes that Facebook will prove to be a good advertising platform for like small businesses in a way that no other platform has been because you know putting a page is easier than a web page and the tools are very easy to use and you can measure stuff but i mean absent that happening like what's the broad benefit that facebook is delivering beyond just like there's a consumer surplus of you can connect your friends and family like what's the actual value creation that they are enabling i mean as we've probably you asked me that specific question, uh, like the the discourse we've had over the past couple of weeks around what I think about Facebook is probably some indication of how I would answer it. I'm I'm not in I'm <laughs> I'm not entirely be- positive on on the answer to that question. It's kind of it, just uh, framing the conversation this way actually is giving me a little bit of cognitive dissonance because part of what I love about Silicon Valley is this notion of create value first and then worry about capturing it afterwards. And when you frame it in terms of the platform companies which are based outside of Silicon Valley doing a lot of that and that it's the companies the companies that so many of us like look up to and admire like the Apple and the Google and the Facebook and it's not to go down on them but in this particular framing of it it's they're the ones that are that are on the opposite side of that equation it's kind of a little depressing to kind of clarify one one point of that yeah. Facebook and Google and Apple and all of them they're creating tremendous value just to be super clear i mean let's take Facebook cuz Facebook i think is the most extreme example but like the if you just measure based on the amount of time people spend on Facebook, consumers are voting with their most valuable asset, which is their attention span. And Facebook is creating tremendous value. And but the vast majority of that is it's it's consumer surplus, right? It's it's people it's people getting this thing they can do for free and and not having to to pay money for it. The problem is when you restrict the consideration of value to monetary value, like actual dollars and cents changing hands, that's where this calculation of of who is extracting versus enabling starts to get a little more fraught. And, you know, even in the case of, you know, the case of Apple, like they're they're selling these devices. Like they're like that's where the value is coming from. Google is enabling like where's most of Google's revenue comes from? It comes from things like insurance, travel, like th- those sort of categories. But those are like all in the physical world sort of categories. Where does a lot of Facebook's value come from? Like apps, <laughs> like in app purchases. Like it's this. It's like this entire ecosystem of intangibility. And time wasting, <laughs> you know what I mean. And yes, 
Facebook's is is expanded beyond. They have other. It's not just that, but there's a certain level. It's just the pure virtuality of the entire ecosystem is different than than some of the others. And maybe anchoring on Facebook is 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 problematic, and and maybe the problematic part rests with me because I'm not necessarily sure that that the fact that lots of people spend lots of time is necessarily a good measure of a creation of consumer surplus. Yes, yeah, people- hey, Mister Mister Gamer. Yeah, sure. Right. I know. But at at the same time, there are lots of instances where you can point at people choosing to invest time or money in things that objectively aren't necessary. No, this is a very like academic definition of consumer surplus, like not saying whether it's like good for society or not. But like from an academic perspective, Facebook is generating massive amounts of consumer surplus. Yes. Okay. I was going to say sugar or tobacco, or there are lots of instances where people vote with their wallets on things that don't, that if you step back and there, there are externalities in, in the way that they're behaving that aren't properly captured in their, in their behavior. Without, without question. But, but it, so it's good that we kind of distinguish between the like broadly valuable versus like on a narrow basis. But, yeah. but just sticking to the narrow basis, what's interesting about Facebook, Facebook is like the culmination the the logical endpoint of this mindset, I think, in in technology and, and a justifiable mindset, this idea where you put a lot of investment up front in fixed costs and then you you just massively profit on the back end from having a zero marginal cost model. Like mm-hmm. it's basically Aryan theory taken to the extreme is what Facebook right. is, right? They they and they they have a network effect stronger than anyone else. Like they are the ultimate. Like they are the the endpoint of this sort of purely digital business model that if you can pull it off is just basically a money printing machine. Mm-hmm. Because you don't you don't have any marginal costs. You can scale infinitely. Like they have two billion customers now, right? I was kind of driving at this with the open door thing. And this is why this is the sort of tie in here. Zillow and Trulia are Facebook like companies. Yep. They are purely upfront fixed cost investments reaping that scale, right? And they get the gains of scale and they and they have very high margin revenue, right? At least on on an apps on a mm-hmm. gross basis. Mm-hmm. The the problem though is if you want to actually change the real world, right? If you want to actually change the way people live, you have to get into the physical world. You have to get into the actual way people operate. And, get their hands dirty. Yeah, and and like, okay, we got it. Facebook, you did it. You mastered you mastered the high leverage pure technology model. I don't know that we need more companies pursuing that model. And again, I'm not trying to be like sit like God and say like what startups should or should not invest in. My only point is I suspect that the best opportunities, the most fruitful opportunities, the highest return opportunities are going to be higher risk. Risk is going to like, and you can't just sit in this. I'm going to be a purely digital sort of startup. You can do that, and you might get a nice business like Zillow. I'm not sure how many Snapchat is certainly challenging Facebook. So, in that, that's the kind of counterpoint against like cautioning against like going in this space because they're certainly doing it. But I think the big opportunities that are going to be really transformative are going to be more in the open door sort of model where you're actually taking big risks and getting your hands dirty. 
and applying technology to that, if, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. And I think it's a great point. And it's, it's really interesting, all the pushback you got on the Open Door article about all the different ways in which this could fail and all the reasons why it's super risky. And it's there's something about that's the point so, yes exactly there's something about there's something that's that's maybe infused a little bit into silicon valley more recently and maybe it's a little bit of a more finance mindset or maybe it's it's people being risk averse but the 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 the, the bias is to fund the thing that that looks like the surest the surest thing, but that's never been. And and if you just stay in the digital realm, like your 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 odds of getting to a and not to dis, not to downplay how hard it is to create a company like this. Like it, regardless of whether it's digital or physical, it's hard, and to do it successfully is hard work. And there are people that have done it, and hats off to them because it's it's really hard to do, and it's an incredible accomplishment if you manage to do it. But the the place, the, I think back to um. When Steve Jobs died and the reaction around the world, people outside the stores laying wreaths, people crying, everybody talking about it. It's, you know, in this, particularly in the last 12, 24 months, what you've seen in terms of Brexit and Trump and people feeling like they're left behind, that you can still get a reaction en masse where people feel so passionately and feel connected to one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. Someone who was remarkably successful, made a lot of money, but people don't mind that because of all the value that was created and the good that they felt was done globally. And I guess, you know, particularly in the context of what's happened these last few months, like I don't lose sight of that. Like the the potential to have the big impacts, like focus on the value creation as opposed to the value capture. Because if you do a good job in terms of creating value, like that's what that's what the valley's all about. Like, yeah, there's risk involved. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, there are a hundred reasons why you might fail, but there's no place on the planet where you can have more positive impacts than anywhere else. And focus on doing that versus focus on uh, the quickest way to to a surefire buck like that's not what the valley is about at least that's not what i think it's about well it, i mean there's a moral component but i think there's just a practical component too like the, like the because the internet was new there was all these things that could only be done on the internet that were mm. obvious business opportunities right having a social network what could only made sense on the internet and facebook did it and a search engine and all those sorts of things and if you can identify a purely digital sort of opportunity, by all means, pursue it. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I suspect just by, like, it's like the low-hanging fruit is increasingly picked over. And the the I suspect that more and more opportunities are going to come from the application of technology to the real world and apply it to the real world, not in a sustaining sort of way like Zillow and Trulia did, but applying it to it in a fundamental reforming of value chains sort of way that, that, that changes things. And the fact is this is going to happen in some, like someone, it, 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 you know, it's like newspapers blaming Facebook. Facebook didn't cause them as a newspapers, just the fundamental environment in which they competed changed and it was over 
and then Facebook came in and gobbled up all all all, all the profits, but they weren't a they were a beneficiary, not necessarily a cause of their demise. Like the internet mm-hmm. was this sort of intermediary. I believe this will be the case in all kinds of businesses. I've, this has been the theme for me this whole year is that all everything's interconnected. You have big box retailers selling products from m- massive consumer packaged goods companies who are people driving their cars to get there and they advertise on TV with the expectation that millions of people are watching. It's this mass market approach that characterizes every single part of our economy. And what's happening with the internet is people are getting – the mass market's gone. It's it's into all these – it's shattered into a million pieces. Mm-hmm. And the companies and that are going to change things and are going to benefit and, are yes, are going to get very rich are the ones that start with that assumption, not with the mass market. You know, Google and Facebook are in many respects the ultimate of the old model. Like Facebook has taken mass market as far as it can possibly go. They are the most mass market company in the history of mass market companies. But – if they've taken as far as they can go, like why, why why do you want to go to the same spot? There's a new direction to go. What happens when all those things are broken up into a million pieces and you build a company that starts not with mass market assumptions but starts with shattered glass assumptions? What can you build then? In this case, like this is what Open Door, they're creating a market. They're taking individual pieces, individual sellers and trying to congeal them into – one thing and thus changes the value chain. Again, may or may not work, but the approach I think fits with the way the world is going. And I think that's the way for more and more startups to start thinking about opportunities in the world. What does the world look like mm. when it's there's no longer a mass market? It's it's this ability to take almost a beginner's mind and zero all the assumptions around what's made things successful in the past and approach it with an understanding of the, the the current assumptions and and reimagine that that is going to be an incredible skill to have and it's it's easy to talk about that now and it's also easy to when someone comes along to talk about all the reasons why it won't or it might not work but i i think you're spot on like this the 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 industrial era the notion of scale being the the source of competitive advantage it's over it's, it's gone, and uh, this, the the those companies that exist predicated on that. Uh, at, it's probably not going to happen overnight, but my suspicion is that you're spot on. Like they're going to start to fall by the wayside, and the the companies in that ecosystem supporting them are going to fall by the wayside. Like the the retail, home entertainment, uh, uh, the transportation markets, like the way those things are all interconnected. That's a phenomenal example. And the companies that are able to approach it, understanding that that's gone and that there's something entirely new that's arising in its place, they're going to be the ones that are successful. Right. I mean, the company, I think is the classic example of this is Stripe. Their success is not predicated on being like, if they could sign up like Walmart, that I'm sure that would be great. But their entire point is to, and Square, I think, is the same sort of thing, to get thousands and thousands of individual sort of sellers and to, and to take a percentage off. AWS is the same sort of thing. Mm. And you and so it's not to say you can't build large companies going forward. There will be large companies. Stripe is well on its way to being a very large company. But it is a large company that's built on shattered glass. It's not a company that's built on a monolith. It, it, it's, it's the exact opposite. 
in in a certain sense, they are a great example of integrating around a serious pain point for merchants in the same way that Open Door has spotted a serious pain point for sellers and integrated everything around everything you need around uh, to, to, to sell your home. Like I, my, you've gone through this. I know plenty of people that have gone through the process of being foreign citizens and trying to set up a, 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 a U.S. company, and it's so difficult. And Stripe's product, I forget its name. Um, Atlas. Uh, they, Atlas, exactly. The product around integrating so it's just easy to set up a company. Uh, it's easy to set up a company as a foreign resident in the US where they take care of bank accounts and all these things that would otherwise be so difficult. But for them to be successful, it is they they sell to the companies of the future and uh, just like AWS does. And eventually those companies grow up and not all of them make it, but some of them will be huge and they will take the companies supporting them, they will drag them along in their slipstream. And in the same way, those companies predicated on supporting the previous system, the the previous episodes we talked about, the SAPs and the Oracles, it's, it's, again, it's not like they're going to disappear overnight, but the ecosystem they're supporting is going to start to decline. Yeah, and I think it's telling that all these examples we're talking about, they provide a value and they charge for it. Because they are creating value, whereas so many of the companies before are taxes. They're tax collectors. And I've I've framed Amazon as a tax collector just because the idea that they're going to take a percentage of like all of like e-commerce and like in computing. But that now I kind of regret it because they are adding value. They're creating value for these companies, and they're just and they're just charging. They're charging for it, mm. right? And, and but whereas like Zillow is a tax. Like it just is. And a lot of these companies are – and by the problem is when you are a tax, you are just as invested in the current system as the players in that mm. system because that's where you're getting your revenue, right? Whereas what's what's exciting about these, these new kinds of companies is they are creating value and they're, they're betting on value creation. And, and they're taking a percentage of value creation as opposed to extracting – a percentage from what has already been created, if that makes yeah. sense. Makes total sense. All right, you know, we, I think we went long. We, we kind of tied together our, our two things. Uh, so sorry about last week. Next week we were we were not going to have a podcast, but maybe maybe we will. We, we, we will chat offline and, and, and we'll leave it as a surprise, I guess. There we go. Uh, especially after we received a complaint about someone saying, let us know before you decide to cancel. So like... <laughs> what are you going to do? Anyhow, it was, it was good talking to you. I, I think this one turned out much better than last week. Our, the, the BS detector flashed a couple times, but it didn't go off. So Well, yes. Well, I'm sure if it, if it went off too strongly, we'll be getting a few emails and tweets regardless, right? All right. Well, uh, we are going to uh, see about next week's. Sorry for the, to leave you all in suspense, but just in case, uh, w- wish you and our listeners a a merry Christmas and a, and a happy New Year. Yeah, hope everyone has a super happy holiday. Again, our thanks to Mailchimp for sponsoring Exponent, and uh, I will talk to you. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, mate. Have a good one. All right. Bye bye.